words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So I'm wondering how many of you felt the earth move as you listened to Brenda's reading of Acts. How many of you were left feeling bewildered and amazed and astonished and perplexed? I'm guessing none of you. After 2,000 years of hearing that story, it has become so familiar, too familiar. And it's complicated by the fact that we're hearing it in a different language from what it occurred in, when it occurred, what it was written in. And so we miss so much of the radical nature of what is going on in the story. And we're left with a nice story and the need of a birthday cake. Happy birthday, church. My experience of trying to learn Māori over the last three years and also the privilege of going to various parts of the world where either English was not the main language or they didn't speak English at all has given me a new take on the story. The line that people heard the message in their own language or their own dialect. There's a little discussion about whether it was a dialect or language. Bonnie and I are doing the immersion version of to Kutaki uh, Tanga down at the Wananga this year, so most of the class is in Te Rau Māori. And, uh, well, I get enough of what is being said, but I have to really focus, I have to remind myself that I can actually understand what's being said. But I know that I'm missing a lot of what's being said. I don't have the vocab to truly understand everything that's been said. And unlike others in the class who don't get the grammar, they've spent a lot of time around Marae and Māori settings, and so they understand some of the phrases, the idioms, and the vocab. They're just trying to put it together in the right way. Language is a tricky thing. It's tricky even when you speak the same language. When I was on Iona 10 years ago, uh, we were staying at the Abbey there. Bonnie and I spent three weeks in Scotland and spent the last week on Iona. And uh, we had to do duties, and my lunch duty was with uh, a woman who had grown up in Glasgow but had gone and been around the world and had lived for the last 20 to 30 years in Perth, in Australia. So she was pretty Australian. But she had gone home to spend some time with the family before coming to Iona. And our job was to clean up the, the refractory after lunch every day. And as we spoke, as we swept and cleaned the tables, she said something to me. And I thought, oh, I must have something in my ears. So I asked her to say it again, and she said it again. And then she burst out laughing and apologised. What she had said to me was, what a bunch of mucky pups we are. But it didn't sound like that to me at all. She'd said it in Glaswegian. Apparently we were speaking the same language. But you could have fooled me. And she'd said it without even thinking about it. Because she'd just slipped back into the idioms of Glaswegian. Language is a tricky thing. There's so much more than words and grammar. And I've experienced that the other way around when we've had exchange students staying with us. And their English has been pretty good. But 
so often we've left them with blank faces as we've said something to them which is just pure New Zealand idiom. Our language, our phrases, our slang. And they've stared at us going, what on earth have you just asked us to do? And I felt that also in the Pacific Islands and in the Solomons when I've been there visiting and had to teach about various things, teach people for whom English is not their first language. And I know it's not their first language and I've had to really try hard to keep it simple and to leave the New Zealand idioms out of it. And I fail regularly. So much of our language is tied up with where we're from, our words, our images, our symbols, our sayings. And they only make sense when you know where those images and sayings and words come from. When you know the assumed knowledge that lies behind what is being said. And so while I'm trying to learn to know Māori, I know that unless I immerse myself in Tao Māori, which I'm not going to do, then in many ways my learning is going to be pretty superficial because there's a whole bucket load of cultural images and stories and sayings that I'm going to struggle to get because I'm not going to hear them very often and I'm never going to use them and that will leave my language impoverished. And that's in part what makes translating so difficult. The task of a translator is an incredibly difficult task. I think I've told the story before, but I was at a peace event in Brazil where Desmond Tutu was speaking, and he was telling us about the Jesus who has no arms, and was saying, we need to be the arms of Jesus, which the translator translated as, we needed to be the guns of Jesus which given we were at a peace event wasn't entirely appropriate. And the Brazilian woman standing next to me just burst out laughing and then covered her mouth in horror. It's even harder when we're talking about translating words that were written at least 2,000 years ago in a very different language and a very different culture. That's what makes the work of the translator so much more difficult today. Because too often... They don't even know that culture themselves. There's a whole lot of assumed knowledge that is embedded in the language that is used that they simply don't get. And I talked about some of that with the Good Shepherd tradition, that we read that out of a Western European context and we just miss so much of what is implied in those passages because we are not from the Middle East. And even if they do understand it, how then do you capture that and put that in the translation in a way that makes sense? All of which makes translating really, really difficult. And it's partly, I think, why we're just not feeling bewildered and amazed and astonished or perplexed. There's a lot going on in the story that we don't get. Also what makes this Pentecost reading such a groundbreaking event. So what makes this Pentecost reading such a groundbreaking event is that people heard it, heard the message of the disciples in their own dialect. So Glaswegians would have heard not just English, but Glaswegian. 
they would have heard what a bunch of mucky pups when everyone else around them would have heard gibberish. They would have heard their own languages with all the little nuances from where they came from, which would have used their images, their symbols, their little sayings, like our jandals and togs. Not only did they hear it, but they heard it in their language of home. Now the Greek in Acts, we kind of assume that, uh, that these were pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem and were going home. But actually the Greek word that Luke uses is for dwell, live there. So while there were a number of pilgrims there, these were also people who had come from all over the known world and were living in Jerusalem. And they heard what the disciples were saying in their own language of home. I remember talking to a friend of mine a few years ago. She'd been overseas for six months on her OE and she was ready to come home. She was homesick. It was time to come home. She went to the airport to check in and it was a New Zealander on the check-in counter and as they were talking, the New Zealander said, sweet. And she knew she was going home. It was a word that belonged to home. And she talked about that experience of just hearing that one word, sweet. She was going home. In this story, people hear their own dialect, their own language, with all the emotion that evokes family and land, that sense of belonging and rootedness, where they belong. And the gospel is being proclaimed to them in that language. Just imagine how people felt as they heard it in their own language. Hearing and understanding with no strain of trying to comprehend in this place where they're always having to strain a little bit. And in response, they are bewildered and amazed and astonished and perplexed. At the heart of today's readings is a declaration that God is doing a radically new thing. Well, in fact, a number of radically new things that left those who heard those involved feeling bewildered, amazed, astonished and perplexed. And the most obvious is, which we miss, there is no holy language. There is no God language. Now, we as Anglicans are kind of used to that. Of course there isn't. The Bible is translated in all sorts of languages. Except, well, actually as Anglicans, we kind of assume that English is the language. So, you know, the common language of the communion is English. That's what we speak when we all gather together. And we kind of forget that actually there's a whole lot of Spanish speakers and French speakers and Portuguese speakers and pidgin speakers, etc. All of whom, all of whom have to suddenly operate in English. I remember listening to the editor of the Anglican Journal saying his difficulty of trying to find English writers in a whole lot of the countries where Anglicanism was because they didn't write in English. It never occurred to him that maybe the Anglican Journal could actually publish articles in Spanish and French and Portuguese and these other languages. Nope, had to be in English. Because that's what most of us speak. 
you want to know how hard it is to get your head around the fact that there isn't a holy language, just talk to some of the Roman Catholics who are still struggling with the fact that Latin is no longer the language of God. And we miss, because of that, that here in this story, suddenly it is declared there is no holy language. Unlike every other religion around Jerusalem and the Roman world at the time, Judaism, for example, still the language of God is Hebrew. It's the language of scripture, it's the language of prayer, it's the language of worship. Sure, every day stuff can happen in other languages, but the minute you start talking about God, you're back into Hebrew. And the interesting thing about having a holy language is that that language is attached to a particular place. And so Hebrew is attached to Israel and Jerusalem. So the minute you start using that language, it orientates you back to that single place, that holy place, Jerusalem and Israel. And that was true of the other sects around at the time as well. They used the language of the founders. That was the holy language, the language of God. And because they used that language, the place where the founders came from became the geographical centre of those religions, the home of those religions, where you were automatically oriented to when you used that language. And we can see it dramatically 600 years later when Islam arose out of the Arabic Peninsula using the language of its founder, the Prophet Muhammad. Arabic becomes the language of God, the language of prayer and worship, the language of scripture. And because of the use of Arabic, Arabia, and more important, Mecca, the home of Muhammad, becomes the centre of that religion. The minute you use Arabic, you are oriented back to the Arab world, and you are oriented back to Mecca. That is the centre. And so, for these new followers of Jesus, this new group, as good Jews, their assumption would have been that Hebrew would continue to be the language of God, and that Jerusalem, with the temple, would continue to be the geographical centre. You use Hebrew, you're oriented back to the temple. And Pentecost explodes all of those assumptions, all of those expectations. And one by one, assumptions that those disciples would have carried fell to one side as the gospel is spread. Suddenly, no one language is more important than others. And no place is more important than any other. And eventually it's going to be understood that no people are more important than any other and that no culture is more important. As we read Acts, we can see the church grappling with these ideas. God is shaking things up here, literally and figuratively, and still is shaking things up, shaking up our assumptions, shaking up our notions of how God operates and who God works through. Pentecost is about the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, and the message is clear that the Spirit of God is working, is at work in every people, place, and language. 
and that God will be known in fresh and new ways, not just here in the holiest of all cities, Jerusalem, but wherever you are from. And God doesn't need to be taken there because God is already there, working in that language, offering hope, creating new ways of being a society where all are seen as important and all are cared for. God is doing a very different thing on this Pentecost day. God is breaking out of all the moulds that God had been stuffed into. So are we ready for that? To have our moulds of God broken open? What moulds of God are creaking today? How are we hearing God's words of life to us afresh in our language of home? So let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, shake, our, shake the hearts of your faithful. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth.